There's one place in the uh, suttas where the Buddha made a, an interesting and, and really quite powerful statement that I think can be useful and, and uh, really important in a way to bear in mind as we undertake this practice. He said, the mind, the heart, meaning your mind and my mind, is inherently radiant, luminous. It's the word that's used. There's this inherent luminosity, purity of heart, mind, and that it's because of visiting forces. Usually it's the words that are used are adventitious defilements that obscure this clarity that that's why we have problems, why we suffer. The word adventitious is not one that I use a lot anyway. It means coming from another source or not inherent or innate. So these visiting forces, these adventitious defilements are various manifestations of what are called the three unwholesome roots of greed, hatred, and delusion, and all the various ways that that these might manifest. And we've spoken about these quite a lot over the weeks, in the way that aversion and ill will and fear, doubt, desire, dullness, these kinds of things that manifest in our hearts and minds at times. But it's important to keep in mind that that these are just visitors, that they're not inherent or intrinsically part of who we are. They may visit often, but we need to remind ourselves that they're just visiting and that the pure, this luminous nature of the mind, of the heart is, is not ultimately affected by these forces. They may have the the effect of temporarily obscuring the clarity, this luminosity of the heart, of the mind. And so you say it's like the sky when clouds can come across the sky and they obscure the clarity of the sky, but they don't change its fundamental nature. And in the same way, the, the mind, the heart is not changed. Its nature is not changed by these visiting forces. And it's good to keep this in mind because sometimes they show up a lot and you know, we'll look and it seems like that's all we're seeing there. That's all we see at times and we can feel discouraged or take it quite personally and feel that, well, this is our fault somehow. It's just the way we are as if somehow they represent something ultimately true about us, about our, who we are. And we can fall into judging ourselves. And, and as Joseph spoke about uh, a couple of weeks ago, falling into these extremes of, of self-mortification, of doubt and self-judgment. You know, as though if we were any good as meditators, then these, these states wouldn't show up. We can fall into this kind of way of thinking. And so part of what we do in our practice is to reconnect with this luminosity, this clarity of mind, this this inherent purity of the heart, of the mind. You could say it's uh, rediscovering, reconnecting with this, with who we really are beneath our 
habitual patterns of reactivity and the conditioning, the conditioned habits of mind that, that may have diminished what we think we're capable of, diminished how we hold ourselves. And sometimes we really can connect very directly and deeply with this luminous quality of the mind and the heart, this essential primordial nature, you could say, that is already aware and already free because it never was any other way and never could be any other way. And in moments of of wakefulness, of pure presence, and once in a while things come into this exquisite balance, this deep place of balance where there's nothing to do and no one to be and nothing to get or get rid of. And we touch this purity of heart in that place. It may not last, but we do touch it, even if it's fleeting. And just because we might lose sight of it again, just because it might become obscured again, it doesn't change this reality, this truth. It's not a sign of failure when these visiting forces show up. It's going to happen to us all a lot as we go through the stages and phases of practice over the years. It's a natural part of the process. It's part of this path of purification. And that's this path that we walk. And so if we can bring more clarity and kindness, compassion and wisdom to bear, the better off we're gonna be. And we can learn to relate to these difficulties that arise in our practice from a place of, of some ease and some strength and in a skillful way that really can actually allow them to become a vehicle for freedom. And this leads us to really the, the essential core teaching of the Buddha, the, the thing he said, he said, I teach one thing only, suffering and the end of suffering. And this goes to the very heart of what's possible for us. The full acknowledgement that, that there is this stressful aspect to life, this ultimately unsatisfactory dukkha to existence, that this is, is there and that there's this possibility for an end to this. And this serves as a, uh, I could say a, a framework perhaps for relating to our experience, not, not in terms of, of good and bad or right and wrong or, or what we like and don't like, what we want and what we don't want, what we find acceptable, what, what isn't, and all these usual ways that we tend to relate to life to our experience, at least a lot of the time. But if we relate to it simply in terms of, of suffering of dukkha and the end of dukkha, and we can look at life in this way and we see what leads to ease in our lives and what leads away from this, what leads to freedom, what leads to the end of suffering, and what doesn't. And so if we, if we just look in this way, then we see that wisdom, mindfulness, kindness, compassion, these lead 
to the end of suffering and the forces of ill will and aversion, of greed, of delusion, these lead to suffering in our lives. And so rather than seeing these difficult things that arise in our practice, in our life, in our experience as bad or wrong, something to struggle and fight against, or as a sign of weakness or failure on our part, we see them in terms of of suffering in our lives. And we see that they're impersonal factors that arise due to causes and conditions and pass away as these conditions change. And relating to them in this way allows for the possibility of transformation and freedom. You know, these, some of the forces of habit in the mind are really old and deep and they're powerful. You know, maybe they're lifetimes old. Sometimes it feels that way. And we see them operating in our lives and sometimes we find ourselves repeating some, some habit pattern that we've, we've even seen it over and over. We've seen through it and it still comes up when we can watch ourselves getting caught, getting hooked again, even though we know better on some level. These things run so deep. But we're lucky because there are, there are certain powerful, wholesome mental factors which arise naturally and come to our aid in practice. And they directly incline the mind towards freedom and towards enlightenment. That's their function. The, the Buddha said this, bhikkhus, I do not see even one other thing that when developed and cultivated leads to the abandoning of the fetters so effectively as this, the seven factors of enlightenment. What seven? The enlightenment factor of mindfulness, the enlightenment factor of investigation, of energy and of rapture, the enlightenment factor of calm, of concentration and of equanimity. That's a strong statement, not one other thing so effective. So tonight I'd like to look at these potent, powerful, helpful powers of mind. The uh, Pali word for these factors of enlightenment is bojanga. I like the sound of bojanga. Let's do the bojanga dance. I don't know, something about it sounds good. And it comes from two roots. From the bow part comes from bodhi, like the bodhi tree, bodhi, awakened, awakened, awakening or enlightenment. And anga is a limb or a causative factor, a factor. So you put them together and it's a factor of enlightenment or a cause for awakening. And so these bojangas, they're these healthy, wholesome, useful mental factors, and they arise when the conditions are right. And they have the effect of weakening, you could say even removing these difficult, afflictive states that have the function of clouding the mind, obscuring its natural clarity. And there's another statement of the Buddha where he point, pointed to the natural way that these factors support our practice. He said, just as all the rafters of a peaked house 
slant, slope, and incline towards the roof peak. So too, when one develops and cultivates the seven factors of enlightenment, one slants, slopes, and inclines toward Nibbana, towards freedom. So as these arise and are developed in our practice, we're directly inclining ourselves towards enlightenment. We're, we're sloping, sliding towards awakening. Sounds good. Sliding to freedom. So there's a great optimism in this way of looking at things. Many places in, in the discourses, the Buddha spoke of the path in terms of, of causes and dish conditions and, and in terms of nutriments, the nutriments which support and lead to the arising of what's wholesome and useful. And the nutriments for these things like the seven factors. He put it this way in one place, he said, liberation by supreme knowledge, O bhikkhus, has its nutriment, I declare. It is not without a nutriment. And what is the nutriment of liberation by supreme knowledge? The seven factors of enlightenment should be the answer. So they arise due to causes and conditions and they're sustained by the nutriment of wise attention, wise and careful attention. And then he continued, he said, the seven factors of enlightenment too have their nutriment, I declare. They are not without a nutriment. And what is the nutriment of the seven factors of enlightenment? Attention to the four foundations of mindfulness should be the answer. And so if we bring mindfulness in a a relaxed and clear, steady, continuous way to any aspect of our experience, any of the four foundations of mindfulness, which includes the entirety of what we can possibly experience. It's all in there, in these focuses, these spheres of attention. This results in in the gathering together and maturing of the factors of awakening. It, you could say it creates the necessary environment environment for them to flourish, to grow and to come to fruition. And in the same way, these these afflictive states, these kilesas, these defilements as they're called, these things which tend to bind the heart and obscure the clarity of the mind and the heart, they're not without a nutriment. They arise also because of causes and they're sustained by their own nutriment of unwise or careless attention, you could say, is their nutriment. So another way we could put this is to say that both these wholesome factors of awakening and and these afflictive states require a certain kind of internal environment to arise and then to flourish and grow. And, And we could see a parallel to this in nature. You know, different kinds of plants and animals need specific conditions and, and environments to live and different nutrients that support them in order to live happily and grow. You know, just if we walk around here and we'll, we go in the woods and there are, are ferns and certain plants that grow in, under the canopy of the trees and, and they wouldn't grow well if we moved them out into the the open meadows, the same ways if we took 
some of the flowers and grasses that grow out in the fields and put them in under the trees, they wouldn't live there. They wouldn't be happy there. And so these different factors require specific environments to, to live. And we could say that the key condition, the key, the key to, uh, that allows the factors of environment to, to grow and to flourish is, is the light of mindfulness, the light of awareness. It's like the sunlight that plants need. And these afflictive emotions can't survive in the light of mindfulness, of awareness. They require a certain kind of darkness. They need lack of awareness, you could say. So I'll list these seven factors again, give you the Pali names, and I'll talk about them this evening. So the first one is sati, mindfulness. Dhamma vichaya is investigation of dhammas. Virya, effort or energy. Courage, sometimes it's called courage, courageous effort. Piti is rapture, joyful interest. Pasadi, calm or tranquility. Samadhi, concentration. And upeka, equanimity. Now these are the seven. Now they're one of the lists. Lots of lists and in this tradition. I was listening to a, a talk by a friend of mine and she likened these various lists to, uh, to a field guide. Like we have a field guide with all these lists in it. You know, as in the Buddha as a researcher who's gone out and done field work and has come back with this useful field guide. Kind of an interesting way to look at it. And I know not everybody likes field guides. Uh, maybe I'm, I like, I'm a kind of an amateur bird watcher <laughs> of sorts. Not the kind that will drive you completely crazy, maybe. But I've loved birds and I like to identify them and learn about them. And I have some field guides. I, I spent the better part of a year on a long pilgrimage in India a few years ago with a monk teacher. Some of you may know his name is uh, Ajahn Amaro. He's recently taken over the abbotship in England of Amaravati Monastery. And my friend Eric and I um, were his attendants and of splitting a, a bit more than a year travel in India with him. I had the bigger half of the year. Uh, but there was a time when the three of us were together also. I remember I, so I bought myself a field guide to the birds of India and I'd, I'd go out and I'd come back all excited I'd seen a blue-bearded bee-eater, for example, which is a particularly cool bird, and, and I'd come back, and, and they would try to express some mood detail for me, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> clearly didn't, uh, didn't strike them, although the blue-bearded bee-eater is, is a very fine bird. There's no getting around it, no matter how you feel about these things. So regardless of how we feel about these lists, um, there are these, we, the Buddha did great research and we have the, the benefit of that. And he, he put his research into simple, easy teachings, which we can, can access. 
So he spoke about in the, in the Satipatthana Sutta, in this Sutta of which the instructions for our practice, he had this uh, simple, straightforward way of talking about the seven factors. He said, and how does one dwell contemplating phenomena in phenomena in terms of the seven enlightenment factors? Here, when the mindfulness factor of enlightenment is present, one understands there is the mindfulness enlightenment factor in me. Or when there is no mindfulness enlightenment factor present, one understands there is no mindfulness enlightenment factor in me. And one also understands how the unarisen mindfulness enlightenment factor arises and how the arisen mindfulness enlightenment factor comes to fulfillment by development and goes on in the same way for the other six. So basically what we're told to do is notice when they're there, if they're there or not, detect them, see what leads to them arising and see how they're developed. So we're, our job in this really, the bottom line is we're to be mindful, not to control our experience. We see if these things are there, how they arise and what causes them to arise and how they're brought to development, perfected. So we're not trying to make something happen. We just want to see what's going on, get familiar with that and begin to really know it directly and intimately. And these seven factors, they manifest in a more subtle way often than, than the afflictive states. Sometimes they're really obscured by them because the others can storm through us and cause a lot of upheaval. So we need to learn how to recognize them, not through thinking about them and analyzing them, but really touching them directly. So I'll go through each one in brief. Um, you could give a talk on each of them and, and that's been done. Joseph has done a, a series on the Satipatthana Sutta where he, he gives and devotes an entire talk to each of these and, and it's a very good source for more detail. So sati, mindfulness, this is the first factor and you know we've spoken about it endlessly but uh, it's kind of in its own factor, it, in its own category, I should say. It, it has the function of gathering together and balancing the other six. So it stands a bit alone of the seven. It's said that it's the only one of them that you can't have too much of. And all of the others follow in the wake of mindfulness. So it's really the key. You know, all wholesome things flourish when it's present. So mindfulness, this quality factor, mental factor that connects us directly with our experience free of concepts, this is what opens the door to the entire path. The Buddha said, this is the pathway to the deathless. So this is the key. And I'll, I'll just mention a few characteristics of mindfulness. This word sati, it's related to a verb in Pali, sarati, which means to remember. And so mindfulness has this function of helping us to remember to be present. And there's another way that it relates to memory in terms of a quality of relaxed receptivity. And we could think of this in, in uh, an example would be times when 
we're trying desperately to remember something that, that we've forgotten. And the more we try, the, the, less, the less we're able to recall it. But then when we set it aside, often the memory springs to mind uh, spontaneously. So this quality of memory that's in that. And there's a, a quality of mindfulness of non-superficiality. There's an image of this. It's said it's like the difference between when we toss a cork into a stream of water or a stone, and a cork bobs on the surface and floats along with the current, with the stream, but a stone sinks through down to the bed, the stream bed. So mindfulness is likened to the stone that sinks below the surface of things. It has non-superficiality. And it's impartial and non-interfering. Doesn't seek to change the experience in any way. It's uninvolved and detached, but not in a cold or indifferent, aloof way. It's, It's totally the opposite, actually. Mindfulness rubs right up against our experience, up against the objects of our attention. But it's non-reactive. It lets things be just the way they are. There's no judgment or preference there. So then we have these six, the remaining six factors. They're grouped into two categories. There are three that have uh, an energizing, uplifting, energizing quality, and three that have the function of calming, collecting, settling the mind and heart. And we need a balance of them. They need to be balanced in order to function well. And then liberation, this sloping, slanting towards freedom that comes when these are developed. This comes out of this balance where we're not too high, not too energized, not overly excited or or euphoric in one way. And we're not too cooled out. We're not so chilled out that we fall into foggy stupor or some balance between these. Because if we get off balance, we can tend to disconnect with reality. We, it's hard to connect with how things, the truth of things in the moment, if we're off balance with either too much energy or too much tranquility. But when they're balanced, then our hearts and minds are open and receptive. And, and there's a strength of heart that comes from this we're able to open to experience without falling into extremes of being too excited or, or dull. So the energizing factors, I'll talk about them first. Dhamma vichaya, this investigation, virya, energy, effort, courageous effort, and piti, rapture, joyful interest. So the factor of investigation Dhamma Vichaya. And I think this using the word investigation can sometimes be a little problematic with this factor because investigation for us often has the connotation of a kind of um, intellectual analysis or, or thinking about a thing. We investigate in that way. But this really points to an intuitive kind of discerning that distinguishes the the characteristics, the fundamental characteristics of things. It's described in one way as though we were given a flashlight when we were in a dark room and we 
we use the flashlight to reveal what's there in the room. And so we can use this investigation in this way just to see things clearly and to draw our attention near to experience. And so with this factor, we become more and more intimate with life, with our experience, discovering the details of things, but not intellectually, but through directly connecting with things. So it's a way, in a way, this factor, when this is developed, when we develop it, we plunge or dive into our experience below the surface, below the appearances of things. And there's a character, there's a Pali term, uh, paramatta dhamma, ultimate reality is usually translated as. I'm using a lot of Pali tonight. These characteristics of things that are simply, it, it just means uh, the experience of things free of any concept, below the level of concept. So for example, um, Andrea spoke a lot the other night about uh, the way that we can relate to material things, our material, our experience of materiality in terms of these four great elements of earth, fire, water, and air. And so they all have these specific characteristics. And she spoke about these at length, you know, earth by characterized by hardness, solidity, textures, and fire, temperature of heat and cold. And Water has fluidity and cohesion and air, movement and tension, vibration, these, these fundamental elemental natures of things. These are the paramatta dhammas of all things. And we can experience them directly in sensations in our body. But the factor of investigation also reveals these universal common characteristics that have been spoken about that are shared by all things that are common to all things, these characteristics of impermanence, of unsatisfactoriness, and of corelessness. And it's through deeply seeing these things, these common characteristics, through seeing these deeply that insight arises. So this investigation brings interest because it draws close to experience, it draws near to it. We touch it directly and intimately, and it doesn't really matter what our experience is. This factor can, can function and can uh, grow and flourish no matter what we're paying attention to. It's really great, you know, we don't have to have some really cool, interesting thing to investigate in our experience, you know. The breath, for example, it wouldn't strike us as most people as particularly interesting, but in meditation it can become very interesting if we really draw close and near to it, if we really rub right up against it, investigate it in this way. And then there's the factor, the second energizing factor, virya, effort or energy. It's often called courageous effort and sometimes there is a very courageous, even heroic aspect to it. You know, this isn't easy what we're doing. A lot of the time it's not at all easy. And so this kind of courageous effort, that's what we need to stay at it, you know, through the ups and downs to persevere. It's a kind of enduring, patient 
effort sees things through to the end, to stand firm in the face of experience, sometimes very difficult experience. I think of it as a kind of doggedness, stick to where we're, we're in this for the long haul. We, we have this attitude. Mm, there's this incredibly inspiring example of the Buddha on the night of his awakening, of his enlightenment. This famous uh, thing that he said when he sat down under the Bodhi tree that night, he said, let only my skin, sinews, and bones remain. Let the flesh and blood in my body dry up. Yet there be, shall be no ceasing of energy until I have attained whatever can be won by human strength, human energy, and human effort. This, this sense of standing firm is, I think, also very beautifully illustrated by, by his gesture that that night of touching the earth and asking the earth to bear witness. This feeling of not budging in the face of things, in the face of experience, not fighting it and not retreating, standing firm like a mountain. And there's real dignity and courage in that. And finding balance in terms of effort, in terms of energy is something that we're constantly refining and adjusting you know, we don't, unfortunately, just kind of get this set and then it's, it's all set. It's something that we have to adjust and uh, refine. And times we make too much energy, we get tense and, and we eventually can tire ourselves out, wear ourselves out. And at other times we don't make enough energy and, and we fall into kind of a lazy, dull place. And so right effort, right amount of energy is just enough that it allows our attention to land on each moment's experience. We don't have excessive zeal, too much energy, and crush the moment. But we don't slip off of it either. We don't lose touch and slip away because we're making too little effort. It's that, that kind of energy that we just meet each moment arising, just this moment, over and over. So these, these moments of balanced energy, just a lot of those, just the right a little amount, but made over and over. And that's a sustainable way of practicing. You know, we meet each moment, just this moment as it arises. We don't tire ourselves out. We don't wear ourselves out. You know, if we try to be mindful for the whole day, it's, it's too much, it's t that's too tall a, an order. I'm gonna be mindful all day today, not miss a moment. But if we just say, I'm gonna be mindful for this next beginning of an in-breath, and then maybe the end of it if I'm still here. You know, we can do that, it's doable if we just approach our practice that way, moments of effort put together in that way. So then the third of the energizing factors is piti, sometimes called rapture, or joy, joyful interest. It does have this quality of, of interest with a happy, joyful 
aspect to the interest. It has this characteristic of delight, of satisfaction. And it has these qualities in and of itself, but it also has an ability to, um, to pervade, you could say, to imbue other states, other experiences with this same quality. It brings this sense of delight and satisfaction to other experiences. You know, we can get very serious in our practice and we can lose touch sometimes with feelings of joy and joyful interest. PT brings this, it, it refreshes us with a kind of spiritual joy, you could say, it uplifts us, it can bring us out of the sometimes overly serious way that we approach our practice. In one of the technical definitions, it's, it's said that it has the characteristic, PT has the characteristics of being endearing, it endears, it has the function to refresh the body and mind and it manifests as a kind of elation. And so it can fill our body and mind with a lightness and a kind of agility. And, and sometimes there are physical sensations that come with it that usually are quite pleasant and delightful. Although sometimes they can be so strong that they, they aren't so delightful. But it's a kind of joy that comes from being really intimate with life, intimate with our experience. And it doesn't depend on our experience being any particular way. It's quite amazing in this way. Sometimes we can be experiencing something that's, that's very difficult or, or painful. But this quality of piti has an ability to pervade other states and infuse them with happiness and delight. I can remember times practicing with very difficult, painful sensations in the body, for example, but this quality of joyful interest arising and, and those sensations didn't change, but the relationship to them was completely different. It, this quality pervades, it imbues these things with a, a whole different quality. So the other day, Andrea talked about the, uh, these five different kinds of PT. I'll go through those again. There's minor or lesser rapture as a kind of chills or goosebumpy kind of quality in terms of the sensations that we might notice that come with it. And there's momentary rapture, which have as a very intense kind of flashing like flashes of lightning, it's strong and intense. Showering rapture can feel like it's breaking over us like a series of waves or a, a rain. And there's uplifting rapture that can make the body feel very light. And then this kind of pervading rapture. I guess I'll tell this story it made me feel, brought me a lot of joy once when I was hearing it. It's a story that uh, Joseph used in one of his talks. It's a story um, of a young woman who was uh, in a village near a monastery, the village of Vatakalaka, 
the, the Girkandaka monastery, and, and she was uh, living with her parents, staying with her parents, and they were going to go to the monastery, but she was uh, pregnant and nearing the time of giving birth, and they said, you shouldn't go, uh, you should stay home, and they said, we'll go, and, and we'll hear the Dhamma, and we'll gain merit on your behalf, and, and the, even though she wanted to go, she heeded their wishes, and so then she went out onto the balcony of the house, their house, and she could gaze out across at the shrine in the compound, and it was a full moon night, observance night, and she could see it shining in the light of the moon and see the people circling the shrine and making offerings, and there was chanting she could hear drifting in on the breeze, and she thought they're so lucky to be able to go to the monastery and wander about the shrine and hear the Dhamma hear the chanting. And it said that she had this vision of the shrine as though it were a mound of pearls. And she had this joy and delight arose so strongly that she floated up into the air. She came down on a terrace of the shrine and got there before her parents got there. And so they showed up and said, how did you get here? What road did you take? And she said, I came through the air, not by the road. <laughs> She said, as I was standing gazing at the shrine in the moonlight, a strong joy arose in me with the Buddha as its object. And then I knew no more if I was standing or sitting, but only that I was rising into the air and I came to rest on the shrine terrace. So, <laughs> look at, see if there's any floaters out there. <laughs> so it's a nice story, but it points to this uplifting quality of this this factor. And then there's this pervading rapture. It tends to fill the body and the mind in a way to really, it's somewhat more subtle in some ways. So summing up there, these three energy, energizing factors of investigation, of energy, effort, and of joyful energy, joyful interest. And then there are these three calming, tranquilizing factors. I better get going. So the first of these is pasadi, calm, usually called calm or calm coolness. And it has the characteristic to calm the mind and body and tranquilize when things are agitated or unrestful. In a way it's said to suppress heat heat of restlessness, of worry, of agitation in the mind and heart. So it has this cooling effect, this non-agitating effect. And sometimes when it's growing and when it's strong, things seem to become, they feel more simple to us and things seem to sometimes slow down a bit. We relax. And it can come in different ways. It can come in brief moments. It's not always this extended period. There can be a feeling of calm in the center of a storm where there's a feeling of rest even in the middle of energy in the middle of more agitated states it said that this feeling of calm often almost always follows upon the arising of of this strong pervading rapture especially and when it's strong we don't want to move at all we feel like we want we could just sit for a long period and then there's the second of these calming, tranquilizing factors is 
samadhi, concentration. It has the characteristic of non-scatteredness, non-dispersal. So with samadhi, with concentration, the mind tends to, to really stick right with the object, to not slip off. There's a quality of our attention remaining just right there, kind of stillness. And so samadhi has the function of gathering, collecting the mind. It keeps things in a group. It keeps these factors from scattering, from dispersing. And so as it grows stronger, the mind becomes quite still, very quiet. This is the manifestation of concentration. And there's two ways that it, it's developed. It can be developed through a kind of continuous concentration on a single object to the complete exclusion of any other, or through momentary concentration to changing objects that are in, arising in passing. They can arise and pass even very quickly, but the continuity of mindfulness brings a concentration. And both are very, very powerful, both of these. The, the more continuous type on a single object is, is a tranquility, a pure tranquility practice, we could say. And it can lead to deep absorptions when it's really developed strong, in a strong way. And it, it develops real strength and unification of the mind, and it sets all defilements temporarily at bay when it's strong. And it can be a very useful foundation for insight practice. This momentary concentration from continuity of mindfulness to changing objects can also be very powerful concentration, powerful samadhi, despite the fact that there's this attending to the flux and change. It can be steady if our mindfulness is without breaks, a lot of breaks and gaps. And it has the same function of collecting, gathering the mind, keeping these defilements at bay. So either of these kinds of samadhi, they bring a composure, a stillness to the mind. There's a great relief from wandering mind and we're not pushed and pulled around by things. And it's the proximate cause for wisdom and insight to arise because we can see very deeply into anicca, dukkha, anatta, into impermanence. And it's hard to do this when our minds are scattered. So the samadhi collects and gathers the mind and lets it really see deeply into things. And then the third factor in this tranquilizing group is upekka, equanimity. It seems kind of different than the others in a way. It's this sense of balance in the face of experience, in the face of changing experience. So it's, it's a state of mind. It's a quality that rests in the center. It's not pulled to extremes. It allows us to build with, be with things without being pulled or falling into reactivity. And things that usually bother us are habits of reactivity when when upekka, when equanimity is strong, they don't they don't arise, they don't upset us. Sometimes people think that, that this is some kind of insensitivity or indifference where 
where we're not feeling things as though somehow our goal is to become somewhat numb or to not to feel things. But that's, it's nothing like this. There's no indifference. There's no insensitivity with equanimity. There's no apathy. There's no disdain or numbness. It's just that we're non-preferential. So we're totally present, but we're not pushed and pulled around. There's no preference with respect, with regard to experience. And it's a great relief when this is strong. Another function of equanimity, it's said to fill in where there is a lack and to reduce where there is excess. I like that. It adds when adding is needed and it removes when removing is needed. So when it's strong, this balance of mind is strong, we feel like we don't have to make any effort to be mindful sometimes as though the practice is doing itself. And this is a, a manifestation of it. It's, it's likened to someone who's driving a carriage and, and settles back and just lets the horses do the work of pulling. And when this balance of equanimity, when it's strong and really developed, this is what really prepares our mind to realize Nibbana, to realize the unconditioned. And one of the models of of the progress of insight and these models of successive stages of insight, there's a name for this kind of really powerful balance of equanimity, sankarupeka jnana. This is equanimity with regard to formations. This kind of deep, deep balance. This, This kind of perfect equipoise. It's, it's um, one way I think about it, it's like uh, the description above the Buddha on the, the night of his awakening when he was assailed by all these different armies of Mara. And, and it's said that the great being's mind was not moved. This kind of exquisite balance of mind that is not moved by things. And it's this exquisite balance of mind that allows for sudden realization to occur. And so in this list of these factors of awakening, there's a certain way that there is a flow from from one to another in the order that I listed them. And so it, it tends to be that these energizing factors as they arise and develop and strengthen, that they tend to organically lead to the arising and development of the calming factors. And and there's a way in which they all culminate in equanimity, you could say. But at the same time, they're all present at once and they develop in a more parallel way, you could say. And sometimes we can see them all manifested. Sometimes in our experience, that's what we see. We see these factors of enlightenment. We see the way they they inform and balance one another. So it's not altogether linear, but there is some aspect of this that that tends to happen that we do see. But really, the the most important thing to remember to remind ourselves, because we can get kind of we can get a little worked up about getting these babies going and 
working them up. And, and we really need to just remind ourselves that, that they follow in the wake of mindfulness, that the function of mindfulness is to, to gather and balance them, that it, it does this naturally. We don't have to make this happen. And so in this way, we can't have an excess of mindfulness. We can make too much energy. We can make too much effort, bring too much energy to our practice. We can get giddy and overly exuberant. We can fall into dullness through excess of calm. We can, our mind can sink when there's too much concentration and not enough energy. So we can get out of balance with the others, but not with mindfulness. You can't have too much of it. Sometimes I've thought of this, our practice in a way as a process of cultivating a taste for these factors of awakening and kind of losing, starting to lose a bit of our conditioned taste for the, these other states. You know, we begin to see through the mistaken view that these forces of desire of an aversion that, that these strategy of using these as a source, as a, as a strategy for finding happiness is, isn't such a good one. We start to acquire a taste for the factors of awakening. We start to see how this, this way that we chase after sense pleasures and we try to avoid and run away from unpleasant things and zone out in between these two extremes that this is ultimately an exhausting and endless and really hopeless pursuit that it doesn't ever lead us to deep satisfaction and happiness. And this goes against the culture and it's, it's kind of a major shift in our understanding and our relationship to things. But it's a natural thing that happens. We just see more and more clearly the flaws in pursuing these afflictive states as a strategy for happiness. And this inclines us naturally toward these ultimately more satisfying happiness that comes from the factors of awakening. And we start to see how they lead to liberation of mind. So I'll end with some more from the, from the Buddha. Bhikkhus, these seven factors of enlightenment, when developed and cultivated, lead to going beyond, from the near shore to the far shore. And having said this, the fortunate one, the teacher, further said this. Few are those among humankind who go beyond to the far shore. The rest of us merely run up and down along the bank. When the Dhamma is rightly expounded, those who practice in accord with the Dhamma are the ones who will go beyond the realm of death, so hard to cross. Having left behind the dark qualities, the wise one should develop the bright ones. And having come from home into homelessness, where it is hard to take delight, there in seclusion one should seek delight having left behind the pursuit of sensual pleasures, owning nothing, the wise one should cleanse himself of mental afflictions. 
those whose minds are well-developed in the factors of enlightenment, who through non-clinging find delight in the relinquishment of grasping. These are the luminous ones with taints destroyed, fully quenched in the world. So we can keep sitting quietly for a little longer and then I'll ring the bell. Thank you for listening this evening. And I recommend you let the words drift away. Anything that was useful will have gone in there, so don't think about it. And there's time now for some walking meditation. <clears throat> 